thought somebody else was going to do the reading, but uh, never mind. Uh, anyway, reading uh, tonight's uh, two readings. Uh, the first is from 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and that is on page 1195 in the Church Bible. And then secondly, from Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, on page 1177, just a few pages before. So 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. And then Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Who do you think you are? Well... That is the challenging question that we have been addressing uh, on these Sunday evenings over the last few weeks. Who do you think you are? Well, so far, the answers have had some pretty spiritual-sounding resonances to them. We've heard that we are a member in Christ's body, that we are a priest in God's altar, and a stone in God's building. Tonight's metaphor, however, has a far less spiritual ring to it. Far less attractive ring, you may think. A soldier in God's army. I wonder what sort of image the phrase brings to your mind. Is it that of a a classical Roman soldier? Or maybe the image of a ceremonial guardsman. Or maybe the highly 
technological image of modern warfare. That's the trouble with images, isn't it? They can lead us into almost any direction that our mind and our imagination takes us. So the question that I'd like us to address tonight is, what image does the Bible paint? Even so, you may be sitting there thinking, well, why does God need an army anyway? Isn't the concept of the church militant something of an outdated concept? And anyway, what if I'm a pacifist? I don't want to be a soldier in anyone's army. Well, these are all good questions, so I will try to address them as we go. But first, what picture does the Bible paint of a soldier in God's army? The Apostle Paul uses the word soldier to describe his fellow workers. It's a mirror. So, for example, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, he writes. Or Archippus, our fellow soldier. Paul uses, you see, the words brother, worker, soldier interchangeably. So we might rephrase it as a worker in God's mission, if that sounds more acceptable. But the key message is that all Christians in active service should regard themselves as being a soldier in God's army. So, if that's the case, what should our attitude be? What should the attitude of a soldier in God's army be? Well, to answer that, would you turn with me, please, to uh, our first reading, 2 Timothy um, chapter 2. It's on page 1195. Timothy has been struggling, uh, struggling with his own temperament, struggling with social pressure, and struggling with false teaching. And Paul, therefore, writes this letter to him and encourages him to be strong. But look carefully at, that source of, at the source of that strength, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in grace. Grace, wonderful word, at the heart of the gospel. It encapsulates the essence of uh, God's abundant provision for his people. And it is on that basis, a basis of God's abundant provision, that we respond to him. But more than that, grace is the, is the key, the key that unlocks the meaning of the whole Bible for us. It tells us that we're saved not by our own efforts, but by God's gracious favour. Our rescue from certain death is assured, it tells us, by Christ's death on the cross. And of course we will be uh, remembering and giving thanks for that death later in the service as we gather together around the Lord's table. But I wonder, perhaps you're someone here tonight who has not yet grasped the significance of that word grace, not yet grasped the reality of God's grace in your own life. And if that is you, then I would encourage you to, um, uh, to talk to someone, to maybe sign up for the next course of Christianity Explored. 
Because Paul's message here, a message to his young disciple Timothy, is that just as he, Timothy, has been saved by grace, so he should live by grace. And this message, which provides an important context for everything that we will look at in a moment, is true for us as well. Because if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and as Saviour, if we have um, done that, then it makes no sense for us to live for Christ in our own strength. Indeed, the, the theme of Paul, Paul's theme of eschewing self-reliance is developed in the next verse. Have a look at that, verse 2. The things that you have heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. Or, as we might say these days, build a team. Although not explicitly derived from the military metaphor that we're exploring tonight, it's entirely consistent with it, isn't it? Paul is keen to ensure you see that the gospel message uh, is preserved faithfully for and passed on to future generations. And his means of achieving that faithful passing on is what? Well, it's not to set up an academy, nor, I think, if he were living today, would Paul set up a television station. But he urges Timothy to pass on the message to reliable people. People who will, in the same way, teach others. An early form, if you like, of train-the-trainer course. And this is exactly, of course, how the gospel has indeed spread exponentially throughout the world. So we too need to take Paul's instruction to Timothy seriously in our own day. We need to remember that disciples need to be equipped to pass on their own faith. Our task of sharing the gospel is not complete until new believers are able to make disciples of others for themselves. But as we read on, we come to the heart of our military metaphor. Verse 3, endure hardship with us, like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Endure hardship. Not the sort of headline you might expect in a recruitment brochure, is it? But Paul doesn't attempt to disguise the reality. Soldiers engaged in active conflict don't expect five-star accommodation, and Timothy should expect nothing less as he is engaged in preaching and teaching. And Paul continues, verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets involved, or actually better, entangled. Uh, The later version, the new version of NIV says, entangled in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Remain focused. Soldiers must have a single focus with undivided commitment to their commanding officer. 
getting involved in civilian affairs, of course, doesn't um, exclude any such involvement. The phrase envisages a, a soldier's weapons becoming entrammeled in their, in their cloak. So we can see that civilian affairs are wrong when they entangle, when they distract from the real purpose of the soldier of Christ. And we know the grace that our commanding officer has given his own life for his troops. And so the call of this particular recruitment, Basha, isn't based on the, on, the, on the headline because you're worth it, but on the headline because he's worth it. I wonder how that makes you feel. Do you think, well, you know, actually, I'd rather have five-star accommodation. Actually, I'd settle for three-star accommodation. A moment's thought, a moment's reflection about the hardship that Christ has endured for us should cause us to respond with thankfulness. And the fact spelt out at the beginning of uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is that we have received every spiritual blessing in Christ. That thought alone should banish any such thought and inspire us to sign up as a soldier in God's army. Even so, you might think, well, as for being distracted by civilian affairs, that's all very well, but, you know, I've got a life to lead. I've got daily work to do. I've got a mortgage to pay family to visit around the country. Well, of course, there's nothing wrong with these things. Nothing wrong with civilian matters as such. They're all very worthy in their own right. But the key word in verse 4 is that word entangled. If we're not careful, our daily work, our, our hobbies, our family even, can shift from being something through which we can express our Christian faith and become something which distracts us from serving God himself from loving him with all our heart and soul and strength. We need to ensure that our daily orders, day after day after day, come from our commanding officer. And this is perhaps a good point to address the question, well, why does God need an army anyway? Surely if he's an all-powerful God, he can do what he chooses. He can fight his own battles. Well, I suppose he could. But he chooses not to. He chooses to use his people to strengthen their relationship with him because that's what it's all about. Just think of the way in which the people of Israel occupied the promised land city by city or the way Gideon fought with a, a tiny army. In both cases, God's relationship with the people and with their leaders is strengthened. And that was God's top priority for them. He wanted to have a relationship with his people and he wants to have a relationship with us. That is his top priority. And that's why God has an army. He has Christians as his soldiers. And those should be strong in grace, work together in teams, endure hardship, and remain focused on the task. 
But that's all very well because more than that, we need to know our enemy. Would you turn back to the second reading, Ephesians chapter 6 on page 1177, where Paul spells out the nature of our enemy very clearly. I wonder if you noticed it as Alan read it. Verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. To which an understandable reaction might be, heck. But it shouldn't really come as any surprise to us, should it? I mean, the Bible tells us right from the very first, well, the third chapter of the first book, all the way through to virtually the last page, the Bible tells us of a spiritual battle that rages. And of course, the events of Revelation are yet to unfold. We live today in the between times. And so for that reason, it's clear that the battle rages on. (laughs) One of... The devil's greatest tactic is to make us believe otherwise. But the great news, folks, is this, is that when Christ proclaimed on the cross, it is finished, he proclaimed that the result was assured. Oh, yes, we live in the last days with battles to be fought, but the victory is won. And in many ways, heck, would be an appropriate response until we realise that God doesn't send us out into this battle alone. He sends us out as soldiers in his army, the church. And in these verses, Paul addresses the whole church corporately as an army, not as singular saints. So to answer another of my earlier questions, no, the church militant is not an outdated concept. It is the necessary response to the threat described in this verse. Spiritual warfare is a reality. And we must not fall for the favourite tactic of the enemy by underestimating the scale of the forces arranged against us. It is spiritual warfare, however. It it doesn't call for the armoury of the Crusades, nor, I think, does it demand a media campaign using the tools and devices of our secular age. To fight a spiritual battle, we need spiritual armour and Good news, guys. God provides top quality kit. Paul goes on to describe it in great detail. The equipment of a soldier in God's army. We've only got time to skim through it very quickly and and the list may be very familiar to you. But as we look at these verses, I'd ask you to allow the Holy Spirit to maybe underline one or two of them Uh, of these elements for you. Something that is particularly relevant to you tonight. Have a look first at verse 14. Begins with two ethical terms. 
Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. With the breastplate of righteousness in place. Paul is saying that the church's basic equipment, the very first thing that he starts with in this spiritual battle is integrity and righteous living. In both cases, you see, it is the soldier's character that is their defense. Character, not brute force, wins the battle. Verse 15, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What soldiers need in holding a battle line is a good grip provided by nails driven through the soul so that the front lines are not sent reeling, slithering uh, by an enemy charge. And paradoxically, it is a deep spiritual understanding of the gospel of peace that provides the church with this firm grip that is readiness for the battle. Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Burning arrows were designed to destroy wooden shields and other defenses, but the shield of faith is able to extinguish the devil's attacks. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation, which is to assure our hearts of our union with Christ, that we are already seated with him and so secure in him. And to any of you who did say, well, I'm a pacifist, being a soldier in God's army is not for me, just have a look at that list. It's all defensive. It all concerns the state of our heart. It concerns the state, the heart of the church. It is only when we come to the final piece of equipment, second part of verse 17, the the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the church given a weapon not merely of defense, but one to strike back against the powers that attack us. To strike back with truth when we are personally tempted to do wrong. To strike back with truth when the church is attacked by false teaching. To strike back with truth when the pervasive secular voices propagate falsehood such as that promoted by new atheists. We have... The word of God. The sword of the spirit. But look too at what sort of battle Paul has in mind. It's one which is to hold a strong position. Look back at the beginning of the paragraph. uh, Verse 11. Paul's exhortation doesn't prepare soldiers to make a quick moving attack. But to take a stand. Verse 11. To stand your ground. Verse 13. To um, stand firm, verse 14. It's as though he's saying to them, hold the, the crown of a hill. Allow the enemy to weary itself as it attacks uphill. 
And what is that strong position that he tells them to hold? Well, from earlier in the letter we see again that it is their union with Christ, the head over all things. The decisive victory won by Christ lies in the past, and even though complete victory still lies in the future, leads us neatly to our final point. The responsibility of a soldier in God's army. Verse 18. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, and with all kinds of prayers and requests, With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Just in case you missed the key word there, let me put it in red. Pray, 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 pray. It's not that prayer is the seventh piece of armour, nor indeed is um, prayer the means of donning the other six, but prayer is something that needs to be associated closely with each one. You see, a theological grasp of the gospel that doesn't result in prayer, prayer like Paul's uh, prayers for the Ephesians in chapters 1 and and 3, is lifeless. Or prayer warriors who have no real grasp of what the gospel is about may be spirited, but no more useful in the field than a soldier without weapons. Spiritual understanding of the gospel combined with an alert prayerfulness is the combination that Paul seeks. For a soldier in God's army, prayer is the sine qua non. It is that without which all else is in vain. It reminds us that the battle is a spiritual one and must be fought in God's strength. Prayer is the Christian's most powerful resource and is to permeate our lives as a universal practice. And maybe at this time of year, above all, it's good to be reminded of this as activities resume at the start of the academic year, as the building project reaches its next critical phase, as important issues face us as a church, let us resolve to make prayer our priority in our personal lives as well as in our corporate life together as a church. So, who do you think you are? Hopefully by now you think you are a soldier in God's army, strengthened by God's grace, equipped with God's armour, focused on God's mission. Essential truths which Charles Wesley captured so well in the words of a well-known hymn. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armour on, strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son. Strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, 
who in the strength of Jesus trusts is more than conqueror. We're going to sing that hymn later this evening. And as we do so, I'd urge you to reflect on the the central truth that it conveys so clearly. That even though God calls us uh, to be his foot soldiers, victory is assured not through our striving, but through all that he has done, is doing and will do. Our responsibility is to stand firm. And pray, pray, pray.